Hello, my name is Herman Brody. And what I would like to do is to show you more about the way I like to think about and use behavioral economics. Firstly, what is behavioral economics? I like to think of it as a, a synthesis between traditional economics and cognitive psychology. Why do we bring these two things together? Well, it's essentially to be able to improve our economics, to enrich it, to base it on more realistic assumptions so that we can make better predictions and as a consequence, make much better decisions. How did economics get behavioral? I think a better question would be, how did it stop being behavioral? Because if you go back to the economic classics and people like Adam Smith, you'll see that he spoke about the economic agent, the, the saver, the investor, the consumer, in very human terms. In Smith's first book, he argued that human behavior was determined by a constant struggle between what he termed the, the, the passions and the impartial spectator. Now, the passions included things like pain and hunger, greed, um, guilt, shame, envy, revenge. Smith even anticipated some of the phenomena that preoccupies modern behavioral economists, like, like loss aversion and willpower and fairness. So some say that Smith was the first behavioral economist. Even as recently as the 1950s, Scientists like John Maynard Keynes and J.K. Galbraith still spoke about economic processes in very human terms. Galbraith, for example, talked about convenience and, and well-being and self-esteem. Now, these are all easily understandable behavioral sentiments. So, in fact, all economics prior to the 1960s was behavioral. It was only in the 60s, early 70s, that a desire grew in the economics profession to introduce more mathematical tractability into the discipline. What they wanted to do was to build mathematical models capable of generating you know, predictions and forecasts that we could then test for accuracy against reality. Now, obviously, it was going to be very difficult to build a mathematical model of something like self-esteem. So what was needed was a simpler and more straightforward version of the economic agent. And it was then that Homo economicus, the rational agent of economic theory, was born. What economists effectively decided was that Adam Smith's impartial spectator always wins. Hence, the underlying assumptions of Homo economicus were firstly, that he had consistent beliefs and opinions. So he takes into consideration all of the available information. At least he would not deliberately ignore any available information. He weighs this information appropriately. He updates his knowledge using Bayesian reasoning. And he always acts on the basis of his updated knowledge. At least Homo economicus would never know something and not do anything about it. Secondly, he's assumed to have standard preferences, tangible, coherent motives, like 
wealth or security. So home economicus became then the basis of these new economic models. The CAPM, the asset pricing theory, for example, all assume homo economicus. Now, these models were immensely successful and very popular. So that, you know, after a decade or so, everybody was using them and everybody essentially forgot about the underlying assumptions. By the mid-1980s, a number of economists started to publish research claiming to have identified puzzles and anomalies in capital markets. There were strange things happening in financial markets, they said, that well, should not have happened according to these models. These were scientists uh, like the Nobel laureate Robert Schiller, who wrote this huge tome on volatility. He argued that volatility in financial markets was far too great given the feeble volatility of the fundamentals they're supposed to reflect. Then there's the question of the huge amount of trading taking place in financial markets. Average mutual fund managers turn over their entire portfolio every 10 months. 70% of the market capitalization of the New York Stock Exchange changes hands every single year. Now, is there really enough new information out there to justify this huge amount of trading? Now, it was research from this era that first got me interested in behavioral economics. I, I only discovered it in you know, about a decade or so later. Ironically, I was at the university at the time it was published, sitting in lectures on traditional economics. Try this one, for example. 1989, Journal of Finance, Cutler, Perturba and Summers. Now, what they did in this paper was to try to understand the monthly returns on the New York Stock Exchange, so, I mean, the monthly price changes, by looking at the monthly changes in some of these very closely watched variables. So things like inflation, bond yields, uh, industrial production, etc. What they discovered was that none of these things had any explanatory power, except the last one, daily volatility during the month. So they were essentially saying that if stock prices were volatile on a daily basis, then the monthly price changes tended to be larger. But even this only explained about 18% of these monthly stock returns. The remaining 82% they attributed to unknown forces. Now, you have to bear in mind that these were not uh, economic anarchists, sort of hell-bent on undermining the efficient market hypothesis. In fact, on the contrary, the Summers in this trio was none other than Larry Summers. You know, the Harvard economist is the former uh, US Treasury Secretary. Now, a stronger advocate for efficient markets would have been pretty difficult to find at that particular time. Yet even he could only offer the following advice for future scientists. Perhaps one should look at the literature on individual choice under uncertainty as this may provide guidance 
in modeling asset prices. Now, what he meant to say in, in plain English was that economists should rather look at the way investors are making their decisions. They have to look at their psychology. Now, some of you might already be thinking, ah, you know, there are a lot of factors influencing equity prices. It's not just the half a dozen or so factors that Larry Summers and his team focused on. Uh, and you'd be correct. But the same phenomenon was also being seen in other asset classes too. So in fixed income, in currencies, and also in commodities. Now, take this one. This is 1984, Journal of Finance again, Richard Roll. He studied the market for orange juice in the United States. Now, this is a market which is very, very simple. On the demand side, given that you know, all people essentially do with orange juice is to drink it, and people don't suddenly start drinking twice as much juice as they did in the previous period, or, or half as much, in the short term, the demand is very stable. On the supply side too, an orange tree takes between five to 10 years to reach maturity. And supply is very stable in the short run. The only thing that should really influence prices in the short run is the weather in the orange growing regions. Now in the US, 95% of US grown oranges come from the state of Florida. So Richard Rowe looked at weather patterns in Florida to see if he could explain the short-term price changes in orange juice. And he did find something. Temperature. When it's freezing, orange juice prices tended to be higher. Of course, if you get a frost, it can wipe out the entire crop. It can even damage the trees. But it didn't stop there. He also looked at the rainfall. He looked at the energy-related factors, so oil prices, stock returns as a, a competitor for the investment dollar, if you like, the Canadian dollar exchange rate, as Canada is the number one importer of US-grown oranges. He looked at all of the orange juice-related news and the prices for substitute beverages. So only temperature had any explanatory power, none of the others. But even this only explained about 10% of the price returns. The other 90% he too attributed to unknown forces. And Roll also looked at price changes over the weekend. Now remember, weather was still the number one factor. But of course, you get as much weather at the weekend as you do during the week. So, if you look at the variance of the returns for those weekend closes, this means from the close on Friday to the close on Monday, these are three full days of weather, those variances should be three times greater than the variance of the price returns between the normal weekday close, so Monday to Tuesday, Tuesday to Wednesday, or Wednesday to Thursday. But they were not 300%. In fact, they were only 50%. 4%. This means that weather, although it's the number one factor, is worth at the weekend only about 27% of what it's worth during the week. And the same applies on public holidays. So does nature slow down just because it's Labor Day or Martin Luther King's birthday? No, it just means that although orange juice traders care about Florida weather 
when the exchange is open. When the exchange is closed, few of them seem to care whether the sun is shining in the sunshine state. So, did this mean the end of the efficient market hypothesis? Well, obviously not. You know, even in the efficient market hypothesis, it was allowed for the existence of some, you know, irrational actors. You know, people who, who trade on the back of rumors and hearsay or, or gut feelings. Now, they are going to disturb the rationality of the marketplace, but ultimately, they would lose their wealth to the more rational traders, the informed traders, through a process called arbitrage. But this arbitrage process is not perfect. It has limits. And here are the limits to arbitrage. Firstly, there is a fundamental risk. So any arbitrageurs who have identified a mispricing are also aware that something could happen, something dramatic, unpredictable, an assassination attempt or a, an earthquake or tsunami that could cause that mispricing to widen even further. The fear that such an eventuality takes place could cause them, therefore, to limit the size of their arbitrage positions. Then there is the noise trader risk. Now, if one assumes that noise traders exist, well, who's to say there's not going to be twice as many noise traders tomorrow? Now, this could cause the mispricing to widen even further. And this will cause arbitrageurs once again to limit their engagement. Thirdly, arbitrage incurs implementation costs. Some arbitrage positions are very expensive, perhaps prohibitively so. Sometimes these arbitrage opportunities might not even exist. And then finally, there is a model risk. If arbitrageurs have identified a mispricing, then they've used some kind of model to do so. Now, let's say there is no mispricing, but it's the model that's wrong. Again, fear surrounding this possibility constrains the willingness of arbitrageurs to be aggressive enough in the market. As a consequence, noise traders could persist in the short run, but they would still lose all of their wealth in the long run. Now, this did not happen. It couldn't happen. But suffice it to say, this is what was believed at the time. This was the noise trader era. Now, scientists accepted that, yes, there are some people out there who have irrational beliefs and they can persist in the short run, but it was nonetheless accepted that even noise traders had standard preferences. They too wanted things like wealth and security. I mean, they were going about it the wrong way, but they wanted the same thing as the informed traders. Now, by the time we get to the 1990s, we see the first psychologists appearing on the economic scene. And they challenged even the idea of standard preferences. They looked back at over a decade of research in cognitive psychology to point to evidence of inconsistencies in human behavior. For example, we humans are often confused by the way options are presented to us. To Homo economicus, there, there's no difference between a, a yogurt which is 
50% fat and one which is 50% fat free. But to the average consumer, these can be two very different products. And these uh, psychologists also provided evidence that people frequently experience a preference reversal. That people will prefer A over B and then moments later prefer B over A, even though absolutely nothing has changed. So it seems there are additional limits to arbitrage. But these limits are tied to our human nature. Now, I classify them like this, others may classify them in a different way, and in any case, there's a lot of overlap between them. Firstly, our bounded rationality. This describes our limited capacity to be always 100% rational. Then there is our need for well-being. When we make our decisions, what we seek to optimize is not always the optimal economic Rather, we seek to optimize our overall well-being. Now, top performance, of course, is going to be part of that well-being, but not exclusively. And thirdly, well, sometimes we have difficulties in doing the things that we say we're going to do. We have limited self-control. So you see, by the time we get into the 2000s, we have come full circle. We're again talking about human drives, human emotions, and human motivations. We've accepted that Adam Smith's passions are important after all. And this time we have the science to explain and predict them. 